If you would, please turn back with me to that uh, section of Scripture. Turn back to Luke 8 uh, from verse 16 onwards. As you're looking that up in your Bible, I just want to ask you whether you're a good listener. Are you a good listener? How do you listen? Do you listen well? A while back, I found myself frozen in fear. I was paralyzed in Riverside Tesco's. I had driven down to Tesco's and I parked the car and I'd gone through those sort of double set of automatic doors they've got at Riverside Tesco's and I'd taken a few steps into Tesco's and then I just ground to a halt and I just came to a, a complete standstill, frozen in fear. Why had I done that? <laughs> I'd done that because I realized right in that second that although my wife had given me very precise instructions about what exactly I was to buy at Tesco's for the life of me. I could not remember anything that she had said. So I know, like, she had told me, like, Andy, this is what we need. Can you go and get this from Tesco's? No problem. And I, I, was, I was standing there, and I was looking at the aisles, and I honestly, no idea. And I realized in that moment two things. <laughs> one, I was in a lot of trouble. <laughs> When I got home, that was one thing I realized, right? World of pain coming my way. Second thing I realized was maybe I wasn't as good a listener as I thought I was. What about you? How do you listen? Are you a good listener? How do you hear? Well, at this point in Luke's gospel, if you've been here, you know this. You know that we're dealing with how we hear God's word. And this morning, what Luke does, and you've all seen this yourself, I think, what he does is he confronts us with two quite short sections of Scripture that are actually united, and they're dealing with the same matter. What's the matter at hand? It's how we listen, but how we listen to Jesus, that's the matter at hand. Or if you prefer it worded as a question, the question would be, has the preaching of the gospel really taken root in us? And has it done so to such an extent that you and I have become doers of the Word? Really, has it? How do we listen? How do we hear? How do we listen to Jesus? And um, naturally, I think, given that there's two short sections of Scripture, we're going to look at this portion of God's Word under two headings this morning. We will probably, I will warn you, we will probably spend more of our time in the first of the two headings today. So I'll give you that word of warning. But before we take any further steps forward, you know what we have to do? Let's pray together as a church. Let's ask God for his help this morning, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we, we cry to you, uh, knowing that you're a God who pours out uh, goodness on a people who are undeserving, and that is us, oh God. So we cry for grace abundant, please. Grace that outstrips our stupidity. Grace that outstrips our apathy, Lord, and our unbelief often. 
We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two headings, these two sections. Number one, let's consider the priority, the priority of being doers of the word. You got it? The priority of us being doers of the word. Okay, and we can put up, I think, the first section, just in case you don't, if you're visiting, you don't have a copy of the Bible. This is the first section up uh, behind me just now. Now, sometimes I think, bear with me on this, sometimes I think that the teachings or the, the illustrations that we have in the Bible require from us real engagement and real imagination that sometimes the illustrations in the Bible, the teaching in the Bible, can seem quite removed from our situations. Now that, what do I mean by that? Because that can sound heretical from the outset. So what do I mean? Well, when we're sitting, let's say a Tuesday afternoon, in wet, dundee, rainy Scotland, when that's our situation, Jesus' declaration about giving a cup of water in my name is perhaps less striking for us in Dundee than it would have been in dry, sort of dusty Palestine in the first century. Now you see what I mean, don't you? Well, I think it's a little bit uh, like that here today as we start out, because just look around you at St. Peter's. Look at the illumination and the light that we've got. And so because of that, when Jesus speaks here about lamps, what do we do? Like maybe there's part of us that kind of just shrugs, you know, raises an eyebrow, nods our head. But this is what I want you to do just for a second. I want you to imagine the sheer madness of the scenario that Jesus paints for people who were living in the ancient world. Do you see what I mean about it? mean madness. Like, come on, a time where there is no electricity. Like a time where even the tiniest little bit of oil for a lamp means the world, it means the difference between being able to see something in the evening and being not able to see something. Imagine having that oil, having illumination, and then what do you do with it? You put it under a bowl or you put it under a bed. Do you see what would that be? That would be lunacy, right? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? What would we do with that lamp? Well, we would take that essential thing we would take that illumination and man alive, we would use it, wouldn't we? We would use it. Now, I think this morning and here, we have to be a little bit careful with this topic, this lamp and this illumination. What I think we could do is casually assume, casually assume that we know the topic. We could casually assume that we know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And maybe, maybe, we could get it wrong. Now, what do I mean? I'll see if this is true for you. We could assume that this stuff with the lamp is just the same message that we get from Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels. Are you thinking like that? You know, come on, we're thinking, you know, cities on hills, lamps on a stand. What's this about? This, Andy, this is about our need to be a witness. Come on, get the lamp on the stand. We, we, this is about our need for evangelism. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think that would be quite right at all. You see, the, the phrase that we're dealing with and the idea that we're dealing with here, so what is it? Don't put a lamp under what, a bed, under a bowl. Put the lamp on a stand. Do you know, when you look at it, 
That seems to have been a very common proverbial saying in the first century world. And this is the important thing. This is language that Jesus uses in a number of places in the Gospels to make different points. Do you see it? So he takes what is really common language in that community in that time. He takes this proverbial saying about lamps and what does he do? He uses it different places, different contexts, but to make different points. So what matter do we need to address right now? We need to address, well, 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 what does Jesus mean exactly here by this stuff? Right, we've got two clues. Right, let's do the detective work, you and me. Okay, two clues. Number one, consider how light has been used thus far in Luke's gospel. Will you do that with me for a moment? Like, come on, most of you have been here for this sermon series. So scan your way back. If we're talking about light, lamps, illumination, does anything come to mind for Luke's gospel? Yes. Chapter one. Do you remember it was Jesus himself who brought illumination? Do you remember who's Jesus? But he was the sunrise, wasn't he, according to Luke? But wait a minute. If you go on to chapter 2, doesn't it narrow down and become more specific for us? Because was it not Jesus teaching? No, wait a minute. Was it not the gospel that brought illumination? Do you remember? What was chapter 2? It was the gospel that was the light for the Gentiles. So as we're thinking about this here, lamps, lights, Luke's gospel, we're remembering this is about Jesus' teaching. This is about the gospel. That's clue number one. Clue number two is this. I want you just to consider the context here in Luke chapter 8. Am I, am I wrong or right here? Am I right in saying that both before these verses, both before and after, the emphasis is the same. Both before and after, the emphasis, the emphasis is on the gospel being received and producing stuff in us, isn't it? In a minute, Jesus is going to talk about not just listening, but doing. And then most of you were here last week. What was the emphasis last week? Ultimately, we have to be soil that bears fruit. Do you see? This is not about evangelism. This is about your response, my response to the gospel. The light here that Jesus is talking about, the light is his teaching. It's the gospel. This light is not to be misused. Jesus is saying it's not to be discarded. It's not to be hidden. No, this gospel is to be so received that it transforms us and it changes us, even to the extent that it's light even to the extent that it's observable to other people. What is the topic here? This is about you and me being receivers, but also doers of the word. Now, for reasons I will leave you to guess, um, this week I found myself going down a rabbit hole uh, on the internet, and it was about uh, kids who are caught red-handed. Okay, I'll, I'll let you speculate why that was happening. Uh, but you can probably imagine the sort of things. Um, it's the idea of toddlers getting up to stuff they shouldn't get up to and being secretly recorded by their parents. 
It was, it was brilliant. So the sort of idea, you've got a little toddler as totally oblivious to the fact they're being recorded, and the toddler sneaks into the kitchen, you know, and then they find a stool, and the toddler, like, you know, gets up on the stool, opens the cupboard, and finds the biscuit tin. And then the toddler sneakily gets in and gets a chocolate biscuit or a chocolate bar, and then sneakily goes away through, and sneakily goes into their bedroom and closes the door. But what happens next? What happens next? Yes, mum <laughs> or dad. What they do is they open the bedroom door and they put on the light and there's the toddler in the middle of the floor, you know, eyes wide open, caught red-handed and there's, of course, there's chocolate <laughs> all, all around their, their mouth. You know the sort of thing. You've maybe seen the sort of thing. Well, listen, believe it or not, to show the importance of you and I truly receiving the gospel, that is the sort of thing that our Lord talks about here. Now, it, you'll see it if you look at verse 17. So why is it so vital that we don't just hear the gospel, but it takes root? Now, would you read it with me? Why? Jesus says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known. I think every one of you, if you were asked, you can see the horizon, you can see what's in view. What is it? It's the day of judgment, isn't it? And it's, it, it's a time where, where, what's our Lord saying? It's a time where every sinful secret that we've ever had will be disclosed. Every sinful word that we've thought we've said in secret, it will be declared and it will, a time, a time where Jesus will switch on the light, a time where the light of the Lord Jesus Christ will expose all of us, expose all of humanity. In fact, what is Christ's twofold promise about that day? Do you, do you see it in verse 18? Look at, look at the twofold promise. Isn't it that how we receive the gospel now is going to determine everything about that day. Look, look at the twofold promise. On one hand, look at this. Jesus says, on that day, to the one who has, more will be given. I think the church of Jesus Christ, we rejoice in that promise, don't we? Because by grace, through faith, we've received the gospel from God. Christ is promising on that day, you're going to receive more. You're going to receive a heavenly inheritance. That's one side of it, isn't it? Oh, what's the second side? Look, and Christ said, from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Isn't that solemn? Isn't it? That should we be found on that day not to have responded to the gospel on that day, we will be face to face with a couple of realities, I think. One, on that day, we will be face to face with our eternal spiritual destitution. And also, we will have to face, on that day, if we've not responded to the gospel, we'll have to face our self-deception. Did you notice the language? On that day, even what we thought we had even what we thought, even what we placed in for our security, even what we thought we have will be taken from us. Friends, I hope you hear, and I hope you understand how crucial it is 
that you do not just listen to the good news of the gospel, that you don't just sit here perhaps week by week or month by month, year by year, just listening to the gospel. I hope you see now how important it is to respond to the gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ. I would say to you, it is your greatest need. The light of the world has come, sent by God. And what must be our response? We must rest in and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Now, in many ways, I suppose you could argue what we've seen thus far there is most applicable uh, to those amongst us who are yet to be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? It's most applicable for those in here who are not Christians. What about the rest of us? Like, what about if this morning we've come to church, we know Jesus? Is there application in this for us? Well, yes, there is. And I love, as a minister, I love the direct source of this application. Honestly, my job here could not be easier. Because in verse 18, who is it that applies this text? Do you notice? In verse 18, Jesus Christ himself, he applies it to St. Peter's Free Church. Jesus speaks to you. Now, do you notice what he says in, in verse 18? He speaks to his disciples, his church, and he says, in light of everything that we've seen, Jesus says these words, take care then how you hear. Does everyone follow? Everyone see it? Because how we receive the gospel now and God's word now determines everything about that future day, Jesus says to St. Peter's, he says, take care then how you listen. Take care how you hear. Now, if you just let that uh, linger for a moment, if you just let that percolate, oh, I, I really don't like when ministers use that expression, and he, here I am, I've used it myself. Uh, but if you just let that percolate, linger for a moment, Jesus saying to us, take care how you hear. Jesus saying that to us. I guess you can, you can see that we have a few options as to what we could focus on this morning. Do you see that? Jesus says what? He says, take care how you hear. So this morning, we could think together about how we prepare ourselves to hear God's word. Couldn't we? Like if you're ever on Christian websites, I don't know if you do that, websites like uh, the Gospel Coalition and that sort of thing. If you're ever on these websites, you know that this is their favorite stomping ground. They love to give five hints or seven steps. Usually it's five. But stuff like, here's five hints for how to prepare yourself for church. You know, stuff like, you know, have a restful night the night before and read the portion of scripture beforehand and make sure you're praying and asking God for illumination. That sort of, we could, Jesus is saying, take care how you hear. We could focus on our preparation. We could also focus just now on how we receive God's word in the moment. Isn't that what Jesus spoke to us about last week? Isn't it? In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that we are to Hold fast that word when it comes to us. To receive it in a good and honest and patient heart. We, we could focus on that too. But listen, because 
the emphasis here is on what? It's on being doers of the word, what the word should lead to. This is what I think we must focus on. Please hear it. We must focus on our response to the gospel, our response. And here, I just want to bring you teaching from another source. This week, I was reading an author, quite a famous author, and he, he posed a couple of questions that shook me in my life and really challenged me in my life. And so, I want to bring those questions to you as a congregation this morning. Questions about how do we respond to the word? How do we respond when we hear the word? Right, you ready for the questions? Question one, he asks, what do we actually do when we read a section or hear a sermon on God's providence? What do we actually do? He says, do we just go out and when troubles come, we panic again? Or do we allow God's word to take such root in us that when a new trial comes, we cry out to God, I don't know what you're doing. And I don't know why you're doing it, but this time I'm going to seek to live trusting you through this new storm. How do we respond to the preaching of God's word? That's question one. Second question, he goes on. That's, and what do you actually do when you encounter sanctification in God's word or God's desire for holiness in us? What do we actually do? He goes on to say, do we just, do we just feel our guilt for a moment in the church service and then just go back and live exactly as we were living before? Is that what we do? Or yes, but or do we, or does that word so permeate our lives that we seek in the power of the Holy Spirit of God to put those certain sins to death. St. Peter's, do you hear it? Jesus is saying to us, take care how you hear. Let's not place this light under a bowl. Let's seek to receive God's word and have it change us. And why? For the glory of his great name. We see the priority of being doers of the word. Secondly, and more briefly, we also see here the privilege of being doers of the word. I wonder if we could put up that second section, or you've got the Bible there. Have a look at the second section there. If you look at the front just now, if you look at me just for a moment, uh, you'll recognize that there's been something of a set change and not so much talking about the communion table. Um, but if you were here yesterday, uh, at certain parts of the day, in the afternoon, um, what we had was a group of people up the front here singing. Uh, voices, of, voices in harmony were performing. It was beautiful. But if you were to look up the front yesterday afternoon, host of different people, musicians, singers, even a conductor. Uh, and what's happened? They have been cleared away. And I'm back up here by my, by my lonesome. And what do you see? It's a set change. Total set change. Well, as we move into the next section, I need you to recognize that that's something similar to what we have here. Now, in the previous section, Jesus was with his followers, his disciples. Now, he is elsewhere 
presently. If you look at the parallel passages in the other Gospels, what's clear? At this moment in time, Jesus is in a house, and there's a vast amount of people in this house, and Jesus is teaching these people at this moment. Now, what happens? So our Lord is teaching in this house. What happens? Do you know what happens? A murmur begins, and there's this ripple of whispers that seem to be going around this house. People are whispering. And then perhaps Jesus is interrupted and someone says, Jesus, some people have arrived for you. Jesus, your family is outside. Now, I think maybe it's worth us pausing uh, to address who exactly we're dealing with here when, when you and I are talking about Jesus' family. I really think it is important. Who are we dealing with? Okay, you know that the first part is very easy, isn't it? Jesus' mom. Jesus' mother has arrived. This is the same Mary as Luke has shown us, interacting with an angel, interacting with Elizabeth early. It's a woman who I think most likely by this stage perhaps has already been widowed. I mean, there is no mention here of Joseph coming to this house, is there? First part of it's easy, isn't it? Who's knocking on the door? Jesus' mother's there. What about the rest of them? What about Jesus' brothers? Although uh, Luke doesn't mention it for us here, again, if you look at the parallel accounts, you actually get the names of Jesus' brothers. I wonder if you could recite them. Uh, Mark tells us, Mark chapter 6, he tells us Jesus' earthly brothers. Here, Here we are. Jesus' earthly brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, as well as a number of unnamed younger sisters. Now, just as a controversial aside, maybe you're sitting there and because of your reading in the past or your theology or maybe because of your upbringing, maybe you're wondering, What does a Catholic do with that? Can you see why? Catholic theology states that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Catholic doctrine, she is a perpetual virgin on one hand, and then we're dealing with what the other, all these brothers, named brothers and sisters. Like, so, so maybe you're, you're wondering as you read this, maybe you're wondering, well, how, does, how, how, can I, how can that be in any way reconciled? And of course, I have to, to say what I believe, and that is that those things can't be reconciled. Did you see it? It was only later in church history when Rome was trying to give greater prominence to Mary, that what Rome did was come back to this portion of Scripture. They reread it and tried to suggest, well, actually, these are much more distant relatives of Jesus. Or, what, these are brothers. These are cousins or second cousins of Jesus. Something that quite simply is not in keeping with the clearest reading of this text. Who's in front of you here who's knocking at the door? Who is it? Jesus' mom? Jesus' brothers? St. Peter's, what does that do for you if you're a Christian? I mean, does it not confront you again with the miracle of the incarnation? Jesus' real humanity. Like, who is 
God, what is God? I'd ask you, I know some of you, when you were young, uh, you were made to memorize some of the shorter catechism. I wonder if some of you can bring that to mind. What is God? was question four. Will you listen to, to each of the words? What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Who's God? Who is God? God is the one who is today enthroned over our solar system. God is the one who stands in authority over the universe. God is the one who brought into being the very fabric of the earth. God is the one who quite easily to him separated the seas to bring forth land. And what are we learning here? What's brought to our attention here? God, this God has so humbled himself. Yes, he has become man, but he's so humbled himself that he has put himself in the midst of family relationships, of a mother, of brothers, of sister, Christian friends. Are you struggling this morning with your family relationships? Is that where you are? I know it is for many of you. Like it's the bane of your existence, the difficulties of family life, isn't it? What do you do with that as a Christian? If not, run to Jesus Christ today. And you pray through that in all honesty to Jesus. For who is he? He is, yes, a Savior who loves you infinitely. But Jesus is also a Savior who absolutely understands the difficulties and the dynamics of family life. Now, here's the deal. Uh, When you look at the other uh, parallel accounts of this moment where the family arrive, when you look at the other accounts, what is emphasized is the family's unbelief. I think you recognize that, don't you? In the other accounts, you recognize the emphasize the, the family skepticism. I think it's Mark's gospel. You can read it this afternoon, but Mark in particular, he stresses the fact that Mary has arrived and the brothers have arrived. Why? And Mark tells us because they think that Jesus has gone out of his mind. So this isn't a nice, peaceful visit. They've arrived because they think Jesus has gone mad. That's what Mark tells us now. Luke doesn't even mention that. I wonder if you can see why. Luke strips all of that detail away. He focuses not on any of that. Why? Because he wants your attention to be on one crucial phrase that Jesus declares. Do you see it? Look at the last phrase here. I think it is almost like the the light goes out, darkness comes, there's one spotlight on the last phrase. Luke doesn't want you to be thinking about the, the motives of the family. He doesn't want you to worry about that. He just wants you to get Jesus' words at the end here. Will you read it with me? Jesus says, they're knocking on the door and the, the crowd's saying, your family's outside. And Jesus says, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. How does that grab you this morning? What's your response? I, th- I think, yeah, surely there is rejoicing in the unimaginable privilege enjoyed by Christians. We think about it ever since Adam 
has been expelled from the garden. The Bible has been detailing how that special relationship of sonship with God can be recovered. And what is Jesus telling us? He's saying, that's what's available in the gospel. He's saying, that is what's available in him. In fact, you can fill in the blanks with me. I bet you can. John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or Ephesians chapter 1. What's the word here? You fill in the word. In love, he predestined us for adoption. You and me, an adoption to himself as sons. Galatians 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you not recognize the privilege here that Jesus is speaking about? What privilege? By grace, you and I have been brought into a relationship with Jesus that is closer than your kin. A relationship with Jesus closer than family. But as special as that is, and and boy, is it. As special as it is, I do not think that is your Lord's emphasis in that last phrase. This is what I'll ask you to do to try and keep you with me and awake. I want you to read it again and for yourself look for Jesus' emphasis. Let's read it. He says, my mothers and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Do you see the emphasis? What's our Lord calling for? Our Lord is underlining the need for us to be doers of the word. Not just to hear the good news, not just to listen to the gospel, but to repent and believe in him. One writer puts it in such a lovely little pithy way. He says this, he says, at this moment, this is what Jesus wants. He does not just want scribes. Jesus wants servants. He doesn't just want scribes. He wants servants. You can see it. What Christ wants, desires, is not just your intellectual assent. He wants you to repent. He wants you to believe, to have the gospel expressed in action. It's a repentance of faith that manifests itself in family resemblance, isn't it? Pursuing holiness, righteousness for God's glory. I need to ask you, friends, how do you listen? How do you listen to Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? Have you responded to the good news? And I will uh, close with this little story. Years ago now, quite a long time ago, good friends of Catherine and myself, they were, uh, they were seeking to adopt two little kids. And they were well into the process, adopting these two little kids. And they'd done all the paperwork and all this sort of stuff. And we were around at theirs, and they were speaking to me about the financial implications of the adoption process. And I was so naive. I just thought you kind of put your hand up and, ah, I'll do it. The financial implications. I didn't realize that in the United Kingdom today it can, be, it can cost in legal fees, you know, £10,000 in order to adopt a child. 
Christian friend, you and I are about to go to the, the table. We're about to observe communion. And so I would urge you, as you do that, not just to focus on your amazing privilege as a son of God, as a daughter of God. I would urge you this morning to remember the cost of your adoption. Christ loves you. He loves you so much. What did he do? But he bore what? Our sin? He bore your sin on the cross. I mean, think of it. The light of the world has come. And he bore your guilt in that darkness that engulfed Golgotha for three long hours. And his mom, <laughs> his mom, she took another trip to see her son. And this time at Calvary, she witnesses Jesus bearing your shame, bearing your guilt, bearing God's wrath and all your rebellion and iniquity. Will you not come to the table and remember that? Remember and rejoice in the fact that blood has been spilt. It was the blood of the Lamb of God. Why on earth was blood spilled? That you and I might be brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is stronger than family, stronger than kin. It is stronger even than blood. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.